So I just want to begin today by wishing you all a happy new year. What a pleasure it is to be worshiping with you guys on this Lord's Day at the beginning uh, of this wonderful year that we have ahead of us. Um, before we get into our word, let me uh, pray for us before we begin. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord, in the first Sunday in 2023. And we pray, Lord, that you would be present with us, Lord. You, we pray that you would be glorified uh, through the preaching and teaching of your word. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we'll be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And Philippians, friends, was written by Paul from prison to a church uh, that was made up of predominantly uh, Gentile converts in Philippia. Now, Paul had gotten to know these Christians during his second missionary journey in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16. Uh, And Paul's reason for writing them was to urge them to try to find joy in the midst of their troubles in life, right? By seeking to know Christ, and by seeking to reorient their lives according to Christ's commandments, right? And so at the beginning of uh, chapter 2, Paul encourages these believers to live with one another in love, in unity, and selflessness as the body of Christ, right? And then in verses 5 through 11, Paul presents Christ as the supreme example of the proper attitude that we should all have as Christians, we should try to imitate that humility that Christ himself showed. And so in order to grow into humility in our lives as believers, we must all be followers of the glorious example that was set for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with that being said, our text today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Excuse me, I apologize uh, if it's 1 through 11. Uh, on your handouts, but it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of God. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the death on the cross. Now, friends, we all live in a time, a day and a time, when good biblical theology is generally despised by most people, right? Even amongst those who call themselves Christians. You probably heard people say, um, all we need is the gospel, right? We don't need any theology. Or God is more concerned with our deeds than he is with our creeds, right? You see, these people speak as if theology and practice were at odds with one another, 
as if they're diametrically opposed. A friend of mine once told me that the reason that he stayed away from any theological debates uh, was because all he wanted to do was live his life in peace and unity in his walk with Christ. In his mind, theology was this impractical, unnecessary, ivory tower stuff that seminary students and professors like to sit around and twiddle their navels about, right? Now, it might sound like my friend was being super spiritual, right, in his conversations with me. But what he ultimately ended up doing was to sacrifice truth for the sake of unity. He sacrificed truth for the sake of unity. And there are many people who do that today, just like him. They do the very same thing. You see, the problem, though, with that kind of reasoning is that according to the Bible, Christian unity, true unity, is a unity that is first and foremost uniquely grounded in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? The absolute truth about who he is in his divine nature, about his person and work on behalf of sinners. And so to sacrifice truth for the sake of unity in this sense is really to have no unity at all, friends. Now, unfortunately, people who despise theology, uh, they probably don't get around to studying the letters of the Apostle Paul that often. Because if they did, they would see in our text today in Philippians, it's one of the most profound theological passages about the nature of Christ in all of Scripture. And guess what? These rich theological truths that were taught by the Apostle Paul, they were not written to seminary students or professors who sit around in their ivory tower all alone. No, they were written by the Apostle Paul to everyday Christians right, to everyday people in Philippi, people just like you and me, business people and working people, to soldiers and to housewives and even to slaves in order to help them live their daily lives in a manner that's pleasing to God. And so clearly, Paul believed that sound theology and good doctrine was very practical and extremely helpful for God's people since he himself used it to inspire believers to live their lives in obedience to Christ. And hopefully we'll see in our passage today that a, that a sound understanding about the person and work of Christ, it actually provides the very foundation for how we are to live our lives as believers, for how we're to live, to think, and behave as Christians in every situation on earth. Now, with that being said, I want to look at our passage today under three headings, three headings. First, to grow in humility, we must understand the incarnation of Christ, right? To grow in humility, we must understand the incarnation of Christ. And second, to grow in humility, we must understand the death of Christ, the death of Christ. And then third, to grow in humility, we must allow these truths to change the way we treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, it's important to point out that Paul's goal here in this passage uh, this morning is not to correct some heresy about the nature of Christ that was present in the church at Philippi. No. Instead, he's writing to address an issue that's very practical and important for the life and the well-being uh, of Christ's church at large, right? Namely, how we as Christians can all get along with one another as God's people. 
how we should all behave and act towards one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? We act this way towards one another in our churches and in our homes and in our places of employment as well. You see, the problem in the Philippian church was that they were being proud, unloving, and self-absorbed in their relationships with fellow Christians. And so Paul wrote them to address these problems that existed within their ranks in the church. And honestly, pride, lack of love, and selfishness, friends, are the very same problems that we all are faced with in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It plagues us all as God's people. As Christians, the problems that exist amongst all of us today are there because of sin, sin that lies in our hearts. Yes, there is much indwelling sin that remains in the hearts and minds of us all as God's people. You see, the problem with all of us is that by nature, we are very selfish people. Right? And this selfishness impacts who we are and everything that we do as sinners. All of our thoughts, all of our actions, all of our relationships are often motivated by selfishness. And so Paul begins here uh, in his letter to the Philippians in verses 1 through 4 by encouraging these believers to die to self, right? And to live humbly for the sake of others in Christ. And to further, further illustrate his point, Paul sets before them the ultimate example of the supreme humility of the Lord Jesus Christ during his incarnation on earth. And so for Paul, a solid theological understanding about the nature of Christ provides the very foundation for how we should all behave and live and act towards one another. And so Paul begins in verse 5 by telling us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, what does Paul mean by this statement? Uh, What's he trying to tell us? Well, Paul is saying that the very reason that he's confident that you and I as Christians are able to model Christ's example of humility in the first place, the reason we're able, he's confident that we're able to model that is primarily because God has given us all his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is actually what empowers all of us as believers to reorient our lives according to God's Word by changing the way we think, act, and behave after we're converted. You see, as true believers who are indwelt by the Spirit, all of us, friends, have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians uh, 2, verse 16. Speaking to believers, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we have the mind of Christ. And so at the beginning of verse 5, Paul is telling us that as you and I consider one another, how we should treat one another as Christians, we must submit to the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts by allowing our thoughts to be shaped by our identity and our union with Christ. And the reason that we can confidently accomplish this is because each of us possesses the mind of Christ through the Spirit that He has so graciously given to all of us here who are Christians today. This means, friends, that all of us really do have no excuse for mistreating one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Because just like a soldier who goes off to war needs to be equipped with various weapons and tools in order to be successful in battle, even so God has equipped all of us today with everything we need to be successful in life as Christians by giving us his Holy Spirit. You see, when Christ left the glory of heaven for us, his purpose was not only to rescue us from the consequences that all of our sins deserve by setting an example of humility for us to follow, but it was also to reconfigure the very desires of our hearts so that his very own mindset of joy, humility, and selflessness might be ours as well as we're continually, friends, being sanctified by his spirit within us. Now, notice in verse 6 how Paul moves on to the incarnation of Christ as the ultimate example of humility. There he tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that Jesus was in the form of God? Well, Paul, what Paul is saying here in so many words is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who left his very own glory in order to clothe himself in human flesh. You see, Jesus is not some created being like you or like me, but rather from eternity, Jesus is the second person of the triune God, right? You might remember the opening verses of the Gospel of John where he says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, that is Jesus, was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing was made that was made. Then a few verses later, John goes into even more detail about Jesus by saying that the Word of God became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You might also remember the very words of Jesus himself that he said about his own deity when he proclaimed his divinity to the leaders of Israel in his day in chapter 8, John chapter 8 saying, before Abraham was, I am. You see, when Paul says that Jesus existed in the form of God, he's definitely making a reference to his pre-existence before he was born in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Um, in his commentary on the book of Philippians, J.B. Lightfoot says this, form here refers to that which is intrinsic and essential to the very being of God, that is, to God's very own attributes, end quote. So what Paul is saying here is that in his preexistent form, before the incarnation, Jesus shared all the essential attributes of divinity because from eternity he is God. You see, long before the incarnation, Jesus Christ was one, perfectly one, with the Father and the Spirit. And as such, he dwelt in indescribable and unapproachable glory, immortality, and all the various perfections of heaven. Yet in spite of all this, friends, he voluntarily 
and willingly left all that glory to come down to earth for the salvation of sinners. For your salvation and for my salvation as well. You know, when you consider the infinite distance between the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glorious Son of God on the one hand, over against the most highly exalted and admirable human being on earth on the other. The distance, friends, is so great, so very great that it cannot be calculated. It cannot be quantified. This is why John the Baptist, who was regenerate from his mother's womb, who uh, was one of the most holy beings that ever lived, he could confidently say of himself, I am unworthy to untie his sandal straps. Friends, if God could, if John could say this about himself, how much more true is it of you and I that we all are unable and unworthy to tie the sandal straps of Christ? So friends, whenever we are tempted to think highly of ourselves or to mistreat someone or to be unloving towards another brother and sister in Christ, we should definitely remind ourselves that this person whom we're being unloving and unkind to might be a person for whom the Lord Jesus Christ bled and died for as their Savior. Or when we're tempted to see ourselves and think of ourselves as more important than we are, we should all think long and hard about the glory of Christ and how in spite of that glory Jesus condescended so very low for sinners for our sakes so that he could redeem us even though we were all his enemies living our lives in rebellion to God and Paul continues to describe Jesus' condescension at the end of verse 6, by saying that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, an even better translation of this verse is that uh, he did not regard equality with God uh, a thing to be grasped. I'm commenting on this verse. Um, some of the early Greek fathers who wrote about this said that although Jesus existed before the creation in the form of God, he did not treat his equality with God as a prize or as a treasure to be greedily clutched or flamboyantly displayed. No, on the contrary, he resigned all the glories of heaven, end quote. You see, the point is that Jesus, the divine son of God, did not regard his equality with God as a pretext for, for holding on to it and keeping it all for himself, which he could have. But rather, he used his divine sonship as the second member of the Trinity as a platform for giving and providing for others through the sacrifice of himself. Friends, consider how much this perspective on power and privilege and authority is so very contrary to our very own mindset as sinners. Because it's so counterintuitive to us, to our very instincts as fallen human beings. You remember the fall, how when Adam and Eve were told that 
and foolishly believed that in order to be like God, they had to grasp and to hold on to the privilege of being like God by deciding for themselves what was good. Well, all of us, friends, have been working very hard to do the exact same thing ever since. You see, most of us spend the vast majority of our time and energy trying to grasp and to maintain control of all the various people and circumstances of our lives so that we can all feel good about ourselves, right? We want to maintain ultimate control over things like our finances, our homes, and our daily schedules. We want to control the positions of authority that we have at work. And we want to control the lives of our spouses and of our children and so on. And this gives us all a sense of power and a sense of purpose in life, right? Some of us find our identity in these things. Friends, we must remember that Jesus Christ reminded his disciples that even though unbelievers use their power and authority to selfishly hold on to it and to control the lives of other people, Jesus reminded his disciples that whoever desired to be great in his kingdom should be what? Should be a servant, right? See, even though Jesus, as the Son of Man, is destined one day to rule the entire created order, he came all the way down to this earth, friends, not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. Friends, when, whenever we're tempted to throw our weight around or our authority and use that authority to get whatever it is we want from life, we should all take a moment to pause and to consider the mind of Christ. The mind that Paul says is ours already as we are so slowly being transformed into his image. The image, friends, of giving and of self sacrifice. And that brings us to our second point today, which is to grow in humility. We must all understand the death of Christ. Verse 7 tells us that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Now this verse has caused all kinds of uh, confusion historically, right? And uh, theologians in the 19th century interpreted the verb empty, the uh, kenosis in the Greek, uh, literally, right? And so they taught that during his uh, incarnation on earth, Lord Jesus Christ actually took off or stripped himself of all of his divine attributes by taking on a human nature. And therefore, he gave up things like omnipotence, omniscience, and so on, things like that for a time in order to completely confine himself to all the various limitations of human nature. Now, the problem with this teaching, however, is obvious, right? It is clear that God can never cease to be God, right? God is God. He cannot cease to be God at any time. That's a contradiction in terms. And so Jesus could not and did not give up any of his divine attributes at any time during his earthly life and ministry. Rather, the point is that Paul is trying to make when he says that Christ emptied himself is that during his time on earth, Jesus Christ voluntarily limited the independent use of his divine attributes and privileges as God 
by laying aside his glory in order to subject himself to the will of his heavenly father during his time on earth. Now, Brian Chappell gives a very helpful illustration of Jesus' emptying himself in a story that he tells about a chief in Africa. Brian Chappell says this, In a certain region of Africa, the chief is the strongest man in the village. And as the chief of his tribe, he wears a very large headdress and ceremonial robes. And one day, a man who was carrying water out of a shaft of a deep well fell down into the well and broke his leg. And he was unable to walk. And as he lay helpless at the bottom of this deep well, in order to rescue him, someone had to climb down to the bottom using the narrow steps that go all the way down to the bottom of this well, then to climb back up with the man. But the problem was that no one in the village was able to help the man all the way up to the shaft like this. So the chief of the tribe himself was summoned. And when he saw the condition of the helpless man, he laid aside his headdress and his loyal, royal long robe, and he climbed all the way to, down to the bottom. He put the injured man on his shoulder and brought him all the way back up to safety. Now, in doing this, he did what no other man in the village was able to do. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He came all the way down to earth to rescue us. And in so doing, he laid aside his heavenly glory, much like the chief did with his headdress and long royal robe, in order to save us all from our sins. Now... Did the chief in any way cease being the chief when he laid aside his headdress and robe? No, of course not. Likewise, did Jesus in any way cease to be God when he came to earth to rescue us and laid aside his glory? No, of course not. You see, what Paul is telling us then is that by laying aside his glory, Jesus embraced a role of weakness and insignificance by taking upon himself a form of a servant. In other words, Jesus' humility lies not in his abandoning his power and divine knowledge, but by condescending so very low in order to add a completely human nature that was limited like ours, yet unstained by the sin of Adam. You see, the human nature of Christ was exactly like ours in every way except that it was joined to a divine nature without being mixed or blended. And even though the human nature of Christ was obviously without sin, his earthly body was still subject to all the results of the fall. Since that he was hungry, he was tired, he was thirsty, and he was also subject to all the various pains of death. He bled. So the humility of Christ is clearly seen in his laying aside his divine privileges while clothing himself with frail humanity. Paul then goes on to describe for us just what it cost Jesus to become a human being. In verse 8, he says, And being found in human form, he, that is Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul was saying that uh, Jesus was found in human form. In other words, he's saying that Jesus was found to be in an appearance of a man. Second member of the Trinity was found to be in the appearance of a man. 
which means that if you had looked at Jesus, you would have never suspected anything special about him. You would never have thought to yourself, wow, here's someone special or someone who is important in appearance. No. By all accounts, the scriptures describe Jesus as an everyday common man, one who was born in a family as a baby, one who grew up to maturity, and in all, every other observable way was a human being who looked and acted absolutely normal. Isaiah 53 verses 2 and 3 describes the humanity of Jesus like this for us. For he grew up before him, before God, that is, as a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, what Paul is telling us is that Christ became human, not as some glorious, handsome monarch who was born to be noticed by men, nor was he born as some wealthy noble in a palatial estate. No. Instead, Jesus Christ was born in this world in a manger as a lowly servant, a slave with no privileges at all, one whose sole purpose in life was to meet the needs of others by suffering and dying the ignoble death on a cross. You see, it would have been amazing enough if the eternal Son of God had decided to come down to earth as a mighty ruler or a king. And it's even more amazing that he chose to come down to earth instead as a lowly and humble servant. But friends, it's almost beyond comprehension that he came down to earth to suffer and to die a horrible death as a common criminal at the hands of sinners. Friends, we'll never completely comprehend the depths of the humiliation of Jesus this side of eternity. But in order for us to grow in humility, we all must take the time to meditate on just what it took for the Lord Jesus, the Holy and glorious, eternal Son of God to take on human flesh and to stoop so very low that he was willingly and obediently went to the cross to suffer the wrath of God on our behalf. So in conclusion, friends, if we're ever going to grow in humility as Christians, we must first of all understand the incarnation of Christ we must also understand the death of Christ. But lastly, we must all allow these truths to change the way we treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. See, the example of Christ's humility teaches us several things about true humility in the Bible. First, true humility is a proper attitude about yourself that results in good actions towards other people. True humility is a proper attitude about yourself that results in proper actions towards other people. You see, even though Jesus was the eternal Lord of glory, he was also infinitely humble. And his attitude of humility caused him to act in obedience to the will of his Father, 
by laying down his life for other people, for rebellious people, rebellious sinners like you and me. Friends, as Jesus has responded this way towards us with such humility, then how in the world can we walk around with an attitude of pride and superiority towards other people? Second, true humility serves others in obedience to God, even at great personal cost to oneself. True humility serves others in obedience to God, even at great cost to oneself. Friends, we must always remember that even though salvation is absolutely free for all of us, it costs the Lord Jesus everything. You see, the cross was not only physically painful, beyond words, from an earthly perspective, but it was even more spiritually painful for Jesus as he endured the wrath of God in his very own soul on our behalf by becoming sin for us. Therefore, friends, any personal cost that we're asked to bear on this earth for serving Christ is absolutely nothing in comparison to what he endured for us. This is exactly what Isaac Watts is referring to in his famous hymn, Love So Amazing, Love So Divine, Demands My Soul, My Life, and My All. And lastly, friends, true humility consists in denying oneself for the sake of others. True humility consists in denying oneself for the sake of others. You see, Jesus denied his own rights and privileges when he laid aside his divine nature and came to earth to die on a cross. And even though most of us, friends, would never go to that extreme for ourselves or for others, we can definitely practice self-denial by serving others on a regular basis in our churches, in our homes, and even in our places of employment as God's people. You see, friends, if you ever find yourself saying, this task, this task, no, it's, it's beneath me. I'm, I can't do that. That's for someone else. Or if you ever find yourself saying, no, nah, I, I, I'm not doing that for that person, not for him or her. And watch out. You might be in danger of falling into the sin of pride. You know, speaking about the sin of pride, C.S. Lewis once said, Pride has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity between man and God. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as God, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison you do not know God at all. And friends, a sure way to fight against the sin of pride is by focusing on what Christ did for us, by leaving the glory of heaven and coming down to earth in order to die for our sins. And this is exactly what Paul meant earlier in this passage when he told us that have the same mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. Do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. 
Do not look, merely out, look out merely for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. Friends, an attitude of humility is the only way to real and genuine unity in our homes, in our churches, and especially in our hearts as God's people. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the life of Christ, the example of humility that he set before us all as Christians. Father, we ask that you would bless us, Lord, all of us, Lord, who have your spirit within us, to have hearts of humility, to see ourselves, Lord, as Christ sees us, to see ourselves as living embodiments of the example of humility that he showed us. Help us, Lord, to serve you and others with hearts that are grateful for what Christ has done for us. Father, thank you so much. We ask these things in Jesus' name.